Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. Won't you join us as we worship this evening? I can learn one thing. Sing God that never fails, will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. Sing God is never late, it's working all things out, working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley.
Have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter number five. Second Chronicles chapter number five. We're going to jump around um, to, to several different scriptures this evening, anticipating looking at how do you know um, when a Christian or the church and as importantly a nation is in need of revival remember when God is dealing with the nation of Israel He's dealing with them at all three levels. Those who are his faithful followers, a picture of the New Testament, hopefully church. Those um, individuals who choose to follow him by faith. And then there's always the national application whereby God deals with his chosen people. And there are lessons that we can learn in the national life, the individual life, let's just call it the temple life or the religious life, of the Old Testament recordings of the nation of Israel and the New Testament church, our country, uh, our nation today. I, I want to look at what I believe is a, a beautiful Old Testament text dealing with a nation or a record of a nation that is in revival, doesn't have a need for revival because they're experiencing it. We'll look at chapter 5, verse 6, and then skip down through to verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark, before the ark of the covenant, that which represented God's covenant relationship with his people Israel And his presence, while it was not tangible, visible, God's presence was still with his people. They had victory in times of battle. Uh, 
when the Ark of the Covenant went before them. Um, when the Ark was not in their presence, they suffered the defeat of their enemies. But remember, there was not a manifestation of God's tangible presence in their midst. They had the Ark of the Covenant, and that was a reminder to them that God was with them. Now, no, let's... Maybe we ought to just pause. I wasn't planning on going here, but maybe we ought to just pause right there and remember what the Ark of the Covenant was, what it represented, what the people thought of when they saw, visibly looked at the Ark of the Covenant. They would have considered its construction, that is, it was made of shittim wood and covered with uh, gold representing the royalty, the sovereignty, the kingship, if you will, of God. They would have certainly thought about the contents of the ark. Within the ark, there were only a few items. The tablets of stone were there and the rod of Aaron. The, the tablets of stone um, being the law of God. And so, really, when they looked at that ark, they were reminded of what it is that keeps people out of the presence and from experiencing the power of God on their lives. Those Ten Commandments were a declaration, if you will, of their guilt. But then on top of the ark, between the two cherubims, was the mercy seat, that place where the blood of the sacrifice was poured out. And it's always intrigued me that the blood was poured out on the mercy seat on top of the ark. And you know that that blood had to run down the side. So it's the, the blood of the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world because of what was on the mercy seat representing the blood of Christ. The law within the ark has no power over the believer. And so the ark is in their presence. And the Bible says they sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told for number of multitude. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. And then verse 12 also the Levites, which were the singers of all them of Asaph, of Haman, and Judithan, and with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. Can you imagine what a noise that was? It came even to pass that the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And then the house was filled with the cloud, even 
the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Father, we are grateful yet again to be able to gather with the people of God around the word of God. We know that it is quick, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts and our minds. Change us from the inside out that we might be more like Christ today than we were yesterday. May the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And amen. Now remember, this text covers the dedication of the temple. It's several chapters of scripture that uh, records the dedication of the temple. It was Solomon who had the privilege and the responsibility to build the temple or we could say it this way according to the text, a house for God to inhabit, a house for God to live in. It had been in his father David's heart, Solomon says, to build a house for God, but David being a man of war was not allowed the privilege or the opportunity to build God a house, but that passed down to his son Solomon. But God remained true to his promise to David and the temple was built. This is the dedication service of the building of the temple. I believe that this is one of the most exciting passages of scripture that we have in all of the Old Testament because it teaches us that during the dedication service that God came down and inhabited his house. He set up residence there. Now, I'm interested in how this is recorded, how it is laid out. We're, we're told that it was a worship service, or taught that it was a worship service. Verse 6 records that they made sacrifice of sheep and oxen which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. There were so many people giving and offering sacrifices to God that according to the text, and we know the text is right because God wrote it, amen, that they could not even count the amount of sacrifice that was made that day. I'm afraid that sometimes we miss the fact that generosity to the point of sacrifice is worship. It's an act of worship. Now, we could go into all of the Old Testament sacrifices and the reason that they did each one. We don't have time to do all of that this evening, but 
what I do want to um, stress, I guess, is what's taking place here is they're dedicating this place of worship to God. So these sacrifices are an act of generosity, if you will. It is their gift to God, but it's as a result of their gratitude that they now finally, after all of these years, had a place set aside to go and to come together and to worship God, and they gave sacrifice. Um, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that um, we've almost lost sight of the fact in the day and hour that we live in that giving and making sacrifice, it, it's, not, it, it's not a duty or a law. It's not something that we do out of um, regulation to fulfill something that was handed down under the law of the Old Testament. Our giving, when I give today, when I give whether it's in in our, our tithes and our offerings, or I feel God impresses on my heart to get, be generous with somebody else. Um, that's an act of worship. It's me expressing my gratitude to God. That's why the Bible says, let every man give accordingly as he purposes within his heart. And, and, and our hearts ought to be so filled with gratitude for God that nobody has to guilt us into giving. Oh, wow. That almost sounded pretty good, didn't it? <laughs> our, our hearts ought to be so consumed and so filled with gratitude for God that people need not try to guilt us into giving. Listen to me. I'm not going to give because somebody makes me feel guilty. Amen? I, 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 I've heard over the years of ministry and I don't I don't hear that here in this church. Thank God we have leadership uh in this church that never makes statements like this. Um but I've 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 had church leadership at times tell me you need to preach more on giving or you need to preach more on tithing. No, listen, if your heart's right, you'll give right. That's right. I, I really believe that. I believe when our heart is in sync with God and we're mindful of how good God has been to us Giving and generosity is just the overflow of what's taking place in our heart. And, and so we, we, we need to remember that in this worship service, though, what preceded the coming down of the glory of God was the gratitude and the generosity within his people. But, but secondly, they not only worship in sacrifice, but they worship with their lips. They worshiped in song, in singing with their instruments and with the words of their mouth. Notice verse number 12. And the Levites, which were the singers of all of them of Asaph and Human and Judah, excuse me, Judutham, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals, and psalteries and harps stood at the east end of the altar and with them and hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking God 
when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Don't break the connection here. Now, they're expressing their gratitude and their generosity, and then they all break out in music and singing. N notice the simplicity of this song. God is good, and his mercy endures forever. We could all learn a song like that, couldn't we? It doesn't say all of them were in tune. It doesn't say the tenor section was over here and the bass and the altos were, were over there. No, it says they, they all sang this one simple song. God is good and his mercy endures forever. Did you know that according to the psalmist, in Psalm 22, in verse 3, the psalmist is speaking to God, and he says this, Thou art holy, thou that inhabitest the praises of his people. The word inhabitest, literally means to, to tabernacle, to dwell, to live, to set up residence in. That God sets up residence, he tabernacles, he dwells, not interested in the sheetrock and the chandeliers, the carpet, the air conditioning, this physical building that we're gathered in, that God literally encamps amongst the worship, the praises of his people. And, and then the next verse tells us that the glory of God came in a cloud and it filled the house to the point that the priest could not even stand to minister. You, you know that they were there for the purpose of ministering, for the purpose of serving. But God's presence was so thick in God's house that they could not even stand. To, they had to go outside. I, I told you this is a church in the midst of of revival, when we talk about the Shekinah cloud or, or the glory of God, remember God was present with his people when the Ark of the Covenant was there. They had that the day before. They had that before their offerings and their sacrifices were made. They had the Ark of the Covenant before the praises started going up. But what was missing was the glory. 
the cloud signifying or manifesting God's presence in the midst of his people. You see, we we got to understand that there is a distinguishable difference between God's presence and God's manifested presence. We know God is with us because he's promised, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But, but isn't, it, isn't it apparent in each of our lives, through our individual and own personal experiences, that while we know he's always present, sometimes it senses we feel his presence at more time, at, 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 at different than at other times. I mean, what I mean is, well, I've been in church services where I knew God was there because he told me he was going to be there. But if he hadn't made me a promise, I couldn't guarantee his presence. Oh, come on now. I know I'm not the onlyest one ever been in a church service you might characterize as cold. Nobody else know what I'm talking about. I mean, where you knew God was there because he promised you when you left your house he was going to be there. He was there because you showed up. But maybe you looked around and wondered if anybody else recognized he was going to be there or not. There's, there's, There's those times in our lives when even when we know He's promised us and we believe that he's promised us and and we believe he's present. There seems to be a longing deep down inside of us for something more than a promise. And then there are those times in our lives where God is so present It's almost like you could reach out and touch him. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Those those times in our lives where his presence is just thick. There's, There's been times when I've experienced the presence of God where I felt like maybe the priest in these texts I just felt like I couldn't even stand because God was so real and God was so present in our lives. I call them those glory moments. That's where the nation of Israel is in our text. God had come down and set up residence in the house of God to where his presence was so thick it was undeniable, so powerful it was evident to anybody that was gathered in the church that day. I don't know about you, but I want that to be my experience all the time. And, And I believe that 
if it were left entirely up to God, that would be where we lived at. That there would not be those times when we're left thinking there must be something more. What I mean is, if we're not experiencing the presence and the power of God, like that time we remember, God's not the one that went anywhere. God's not the one that changed. God didn't shift. You see, God doesn't become ever anything more than what he always is. So if, if something is different in our perception of his presence, it's not God that done the moving. Or is it? God descended he was there when the ark was there. Something was different on the day they dedicated the temple. He manifested his presence in their midst. But did you know that the glory that descended on the temple also departed from it? Turn to Ezekiel chapter number 10. Ezekiel chapter number 10 is a vision of a nation. I I, I don't think we're straining it when we say a church. And people in need of revival. Because what they had at the dedication of the temple, they would lose in the days of Ezekiel. Verse number 18 of chapter 10 in Ezekiel says, Then the glory of the Lord... What? How many of you know what a threshold is? Gentlemen, you remember, that's what you carried your bride across. That, that's that thing at the, 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 the bottom of your door. And the Bible literally says the glory of the Lord departed the threshold of the temple. Could I say it this way? God walked out the door. Wow. God left the building. God left his own house. Now, now this is a, a vision, a prophetic picture Ezekiel is painting about something that's coming in the future. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. 
So the same glory that came down and filled the house in the days of Solomon, Ezekiel is saying is going to depart from the same house. And I'm interested in how it happens. It it, it seems, according to those two verses, that it did not happen as fast when he departed as it did when he descended. It, It seems to be a successive leaving. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold. Pause. And stood, it's almost like God just stops for a moment. Or maybe for years. Above the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. God didn't just leave the building, he left the world. But I think it's important that it didn't just all happen at once. Now, I know that even when God cast Satan out of heaven, he was sent or dispatched and fail, the Bible teaches us, Jesus would teach us like a flash of lightning. It happened that fast. I don't know how fast lightning flashes, but if God can throw somebody out of heaven as fast as lightning flashes, could I suggest to you he can leave a church just as fast? But but, but rather... He seems to have taken his time about it. Now, I think that maybe the reason being is through this departure, God is giving opportunity for Israel to change their mind and decide they want God more than they want the things of this world. It happened strategically. In successive stages. But we need to understand why it is. Why did God depart from the building that was built to be his house that he dwelled in and called home? Jeremiah is prophesying during this time. And in Jeremiah chapter number 2 we get clues as to why it is that God's glory, God's manifested presence in the nation of Israel. Hey, let me, let me say this before we go any further. Just because the glory of God departed from the temple does not mean that God was finished with his people. Jeremiah chapter number 2, Jeremiah is prophesying about the same upcoming event in the life of the nation of Israel 
and is, is that period when Nebuchadnezzar left his, led his armies into Israel, overthrew Jerusalem, and burned the temple to the ground. Let, let, me, let me say it this way. Why did God... Why did he remove his manifested presence, his glory from the temple? Because God had told the prophets that he was going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar to overthrow his own people, the nation of Israel. And you see, in order for Nebuchadnezzar and his armies to be able to overthrow the people of Israel, God had to first move out. You can't overthrow God's house when God's in there. Let me put it that way. And so God removed his presence, the manifestation of his presence, from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar could overthrow the people of God. But why? Could I suggest to you it didn't have to fall out this way? It wasn't God that changed. It was God's people that had changed. Jeremiah addresses that in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity and become vain? What iniquity... Have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain? It's, I believe, the sin of indifference that we don't even think of as being a sin sometimes. Why have they gone far from me? Where's his manifested presence at? It's in the temple in Jeremiah's day, in Ezekiel's day. That's where God met with his people, was in the Holy of Holies, behind the temple, over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the glory of God dwelled, that place that God called home on earth. Why have your fathers gone far from me and have walked after or followed after, or we could say it this way, pursued vanity and have become vain or vanity? The word vanity in the Hebrew is habel. It literally means breath or vapor it carries the idea of being void of any substance anything tangible it, it literally means empty or useless communicates the thought or the idea of being worthless why are you chasing down nothing would be one way to understand 
what it is that God was asking of the nation of Israel. Why have you left me to chase down vanity, emptiness, nothingness? And in the midst of all of your chasing and walking after and pursuing after nothing, you left me for nothing, and the nothing you left me for is exactly what you've become. Wow, think about that for just a minute. That's, that's a really harsh statement, isn't it? You, 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 you left me to chase nothing. Oh, you, 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 would, you, would, you would call your nothing something. You'd call your nothing a career, a job. You'd call your nothing family or things or stuff. You'd call your nothing a house to live in or nice things to have. Why did you leave me to chase nothing? And in chasing all of that stuff that winds up becoming nothing, you became nothing in and of yourself. Wow. The sin of indifference. The pursuit of things that will never add substance or satisfy. And we abandon God. The nation of Israel had abandoned God for quite literally nothing. And, and, and we might see that and understand that that's what the nation of Israel did. But, but could I suggest to you. That right now, right now, in New Testament, modern-day American Christianity, we got a whole lot of people chasing a whole lot of nothing and have abandoned the only person that adds substance and value and realness to life. The sin of indifference. Which leads to the sin of independence. He, he continues, Jeremiah does in verse number 6. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt and led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadows of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. God says, you don't, even, you don't even call on me. Do you not remember that everything that you have and you enjoy that you call this promised land, I'm the one that gave it to you? No, 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 it wasn't pilgrims got on a ship and come over here. God said, I, I gave you a gift. You were living in the land of Egypt as slaves in a foreign country under a hard taskmaster. 
and I liberated you and led you through the desert, led you through droughts and fed you when you wandered in the wilderness. I gave you shoes that never wore out and brought you safely into the promised land. And now you've got your arms around the promise. And you fell in love with the gift and forgot all about the giver. You don't even... You don't even say, where is the Lord? You don't look for me. You don't pursue me. You don't seek me. I remember when you were down there in Egypt and you cried out for me. But but what happened when, when I gave you all of this is you fell in love with the this and forgot about me. And I'm going to tell you something. God's been good to us. I still believe, I don't care what you think, if you don't love this country, move out of it. I really believe we're living in the greatest country on God's good, God's good planet Earth. He's been good to us. He's blessed us beyond measure. But I wonder, I wonder if we might be seeing the glory of God You see, here's what we need to understand, friends. I've, I've, I've heard people make the statement that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Could I suggest to you that God will never have to apologize for anybody because he ever, always does everything right? The judgment of God doesn't look maybe like we think it looks. I believe that the, good, the judgment of God on any nation is when he begins to remove himself. When he leaves us alone. When he takes his hands off. And it began to happen because they first were indifferent toward God, which always leads to independence from God. That, that is, we can handle this. God, I, I appreciate all of your goodness, and I thank you for everything that you've done for me, but I got it now. I, I can handle this. What a, what a sign of arrogance and, and pride. And by the way, pride, the Bible says pride always goes before destruction. A haughty look always precedes the fall. The sin of independence and then leads to the sin of idolatry, verse number 7 and 8. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage, made, made my gift an abomination. Wow. Wow. You started to worship the gifts rather than the giver. And, and, and you know, I, I know I talk about this maybe than more of you would like to hear, but I can't just read that word heritage and not be reminded what Psalm 127 and 3 says, that children... Children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb 
is his also. Jeremiah, as inspired by God, said, you've turned my heritage into an abomination. Listen. We, we, we may disagree. And, 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 and I know there's a lot of people sitting in churches this evening that believe differently than what I do. But I'm thoroughly convinced that when professing Christians put their stamp of approval on abortion, they've turned God's heritage into an abomination. That when people who call themselves Christians vote and support political leaders who are firmly committed to a woman's right to choose, then even within the walls of what we call churches, the heritage of the Lord has been turned into an abomination. Let, let, me, let, me, let me say this. It takes more than a sign in a front yard or a steeple on a building to make that building a church. When God moves out of it, it's not a church anymore. It don't matter what you call it. And, and, and the reason that God is vacating this temple of his chosen people in the Old Testament, that place that he called his house and was perfectly happy to meet with his people is because first, first, they became indifferent toward him. Then they became independent of him. And idolatry was just the next step in the process. Now here's what I really love. At the time of Ezekiel's writing, God is still being patient. He's still being merciful. This, this as I'm sorry, I started to say Isaiah. Ezekiel is prophesying this. It's still out in the future. It's not like Ezekiel's preaching it today and it's going to happen today. He's telling them what's coming if they don't respond to Jeremiah and his prophecies and repent of their sin. Repent of their indifference. Repent of their independence. Repent of the idolatry. God's given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn from their, their selves and to serve him. And, and then finally, there is a straw that breaks the camel's back. Verse 9 through 11 of the same text, the sin of ignoring him. Wherefore, listen to this, I will, future tense, wherefore I will plead with you, saith the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to plead with you. Listen to this. Boy, I love this. And your children's children. You've blown it, but I ain't done with you. I'm, I'm not only going to plead with you, but I'm going to plead with your grandchildren. 
will I plead for, for pass over Chittim and see and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Verse 10, hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people, what's that word that we've been looking at? Glory. But my people have changed their glory for that which doeth not profit. Wow. Listen, listen, listen to, to what he says. Go out into the other nations. Put your survey team together. Check out Chittim and, and Kadar. Now, you know that the gods that they worship, they're not even gods anyway. In fact, I'm not even going to give them a big G on their name. They're little G gods. They're idols. God says, but let me tell you what you won't see when you go to Chittim, when you go to Kadar, when you go to Saudi Arabia, when you go to Indonesia. You go out and you look in all of these other countries. And this is what you'll not find. They're not changing who their gods are. But my people. Wow. But, but, but my people have changed their glory, their, their God, their manifested presence to that which doeth not profit. You know, I'm... I'm I believe that this text is as applicable to the New Testament church in 2021 as it was to those Old Testament saints in the days of Ezekiel. I'm, I'm not making a political statement on borders, whether they should be opened or whether they should be closed. That, that's not my intent here whatsoever. I'll do that some other time. But, but what I want to say is when our borders are open, and, and I think legally they, people should be able to legally cross over into our country. Don't, don't hear me saying something that I'm not. By the way, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for migrants. Amen. Amen. Amen? Not unless you're of Native American descent, and I doubt many of us are. But you watch as people come from other countries and bring their gods into this country. They don't change their mind on who their God is. Yet God says, my people aren't that committed. How, how is it that people who worship gods that aren't gods at all, who, who have eyes but they can't see and ears but they can't hear, who has mouths but they, they can't speak, how is it people that worships that kind of gods, they remain committed to them for a lifetime? But my people, my people have changed their glory. 
Now, the response to Jeremiah's messages was in, they, they, Jeremiah warns them in verse 7, chapter 4, to stop using this, this response. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In, 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 in understanding what it is that they're saying, they're in the temple at Jerusalem. They say, this, this is God's house. Jeremiah, what you're preaching cannot be right because we cannot be overthrown. We're God's people. This is God's house. And, and Jeremiah tells them to quit telling that lie. The lie is not that they're in God's house. This is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple. And, 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 and here's, here's the problem. Is all they had to do, Bill, was acknowledge their sin and repent. It's that easy. And I, I think that, that what we see even in the New Testament, in, in New Testament Christianity, and in and American Christianity 2021, is that we don't want to repent because we don't want to admit there's something wrong in the church. And, and so we still cling to Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and boy I'm glad that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church aren't you so, so we, we, we cling to that promise and when God calls us to repentance we want to pretend that well you know there might be sin in that church down the road or, or that one out there in California or, but there, you know we, we don't practice that kind of indifference and you know, around here at the bridge at least. Um, we don't act independent of God. And, you know, here, here at the bridge, we sure don't practice idolatry. And then I, I have to wonder, is that God's perspective when he looks on us? Because I'm, 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 I'm quite content that we have a tendency to love and worship the gifts and forget all about the giver. And, and so, so literally what we have here, I believe, is a people, a church, and a nation in need of revival. Because while the people were still gathering, glory had departed and you see that's 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 one sign of independence is is when we're when we're showing up to minister and we're ministering in our own strength ministering according to our own intellect and our own abilities according to our own talents and there's there's no power of God on the ministries now 
Solomon, according to the Bible, was the wisest man to ever or that will ever sit on the throne of the nation of Israel until Jesus sits there. Y'all do know Jesus is smarter than Solomon, right? <laughs> and yet here's how wise Solomon was. That on this glorious day of revival, the coming of the glory of God at the dedication of the temple, when the glory fell, when, when the presence of God was so thick you could reach out and touch it. When the priest couldn't even stand to minister, this is how smart Solomon was. He was afraid that they might lose what God had just given them. And so he begins to pray. And listen to Solomon's prayer after the glory falls and fills the house. Solomon prays in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles in verse 22, if a man sin against his neighbor, and then in verse 36, if they sin against thee, Solomon understands there's, there's only one thing that breaks fellowship with God. There's only one thing that cost us the manifestation of the presence and the power and the glory of God in our lives or on our churches or in our nation. And that same thing is synonymous with us as it was with the nation of Israel and its sin. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon. If they sin against you, for there is no man which sinneth not. Wow, that sounds kind of New Testament, doesn't it? I mean, my Bible still says in the New Testament, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The apostle John carried the same wisdom of Solomon because it comes from Scripture. And John said this, if we say we have no sin, then we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. And, and so for us to put on our religious masks, show up at church every Sunday and well, act like we've got it together while everybody else is falling apart. No, Solomon said, for there is no man that sinneth not. So, so the people that need revival, at some point, some place in their life, well, that's just 100% of all saved people. I mean, if it's only sin that breaks fellowship with God and revival is... is relationship with God, the manifestation of God's presence in our life. And, and if Scripture's right, and we know Scripture's right because God wrote it, then we all have sinned. And so at some point, some place... In each of our lives, and I believe even for believers, 
there's times when the presence and the power of God is more, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't like sensational, uh, vibrant and real and tangible and powerful than it is at other times. God's not the one that changed. We've exchanged our glory. So, so Solomon says, God, in, in light of all of this, in light of, I know people, boy, it sounds like Solomon knows us pretty good, don't it? So, Solomon, I, I believe the reason Solomon knew, certainly because God gave him wisdom above any other, but, but one reason Solomon knew people so, um, uh, so well was because he knew what it looked like when he looked in the mirror and the mirror looked back at him. So he says, God, we don't want to lose what it is that you've given us this day. So if a man sins against his neighbor, if, if they sin against you, well, I like that, don't you? They, if they sin against thee, for there is none that sinneth not, and, and, and they'll turn toward you. They'll turn toward this place and pray. Solomon's question is this, will you hear from heaven? Will you answer their prayer? And, and God answers Solomon in chapter number 7 of Second Chronicles with a verse, a couple of verses that we can all probably quote from heart. And God says, Solomon... my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways I can see you lipping it lip sinking then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land So you see, church, here's the thing. Our nation is in trouble. Our country is literally in chaos. If you were to go through and look at Solomon's entire prayer, you'd see the characteristics of what he was worried about have come true in American society today. God, if we find ourselves in war and taken captive, because we've sinned. If we pray, will you hear our prayer? God, if the heavens shut up that there be no rain, if our, if our crops begin dying, could I say it this way? If we begin to experience economic collapse and financial difficulty in our nation, if my people, See, here's the thing, church. We, we, we got to get out of the business of pointing our fingers at everybody else and realize that if this thing is going to change, it's not going to change because of who's in the White House. It's not going to change because of a political party or a partisan strategy. God says when a nation is in crisis, 
the responsibility falls on the shoulders of his people. I don't know about you, but boy, I like it when he says my people. I'm in that crowd. It implies ownership. That we belong to God. Know you not that your temple is not, your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. We're, God owns us. We are His people. And, and can I say this? God will always protect His people. But, 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 but it's time that the church wake up. And when I say church, I'm talking about me and you. It's time we wake up and realize we need to stop looking at government and everybody else to solve all of this mess and this crisis and this chaos that we're in. God says when a nation is in trouble, the responsibility lays on the shoulders of the saints, not the sinners. You see, hey, friend, revival's not about saved people. Um, I, I'm sorry, lost people getting saved. Revival's about saved people getting right. But here's the reality of it. God says his people need to humble themselves. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Arrogance. God says the first thing that my people need to do is humble themselves. Now, I've tried to study out that word humble and humility and but, but because we know that's a characteristic of Christ I, I want to know what it is to be humble because I want to be like Jesus amen and 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 so I've, I've done a lot of word studies and research on what does it really mean to be humble and and I've sought this dictionary and 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 and, and this lexicon and and this uh, interlinear dictionary and, and, and wanting to understand this word humility and it seems like no matter how many definitions I read they just seem to fall short of accurately defining Christ like humility I'm not even sure it can be put into human language but I tried and I want to share with you my definition of humility and I define humility like this. I can't fix it, but God can. I, I think that's what it means to be humble. To be totally dependent upon God. To say that God can fix it, but he needs my help is arrogance. It's coming to the realization, man, this thing's so much bigger than what I am. If they'll humble themselves. And, 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 and listen to how simply God directs our paths to revival. If they'll humble themselves and pray. Second thing you've got to do is pray. Shouldn't that be our first recourse rather than our last ditch effort? But, but God feels the need to tell us if we're not living in revival, the solution is humility in prayer. See, you'll never pray till you first get humble. To, to, to pray and to seek my face. I think that simply means, thirdly, to seek my face. I think it just simply means to, 
to, to seek diligently God's purpose and his plan for your life. To seek his face, his will, not your own will. And then here comes the kicker. Now, I know some of you think this isn't applicable to you because you're so super saintly and spiritual. <laughs> but, but he says, fourthly, they've got to turn from their wicked ways. Wicked ways, plural. What, what ways do you have that God would deem as being wicked? He's not talking about secular society here, Tim. He's talking about his people. His people. So, so God's saying, literally, they need to repent. They need to stop doing what I told them not to do. And they need to start doing what I told them to do. They're wicked ways. God says, all, all you got to do is four things. God says, if you'll do those four things, I'll make you a promise. I'm going to do three. God says, I'm, I'm going to do three things. I will hear from heaven. Well, what a word. That God will hear our prayers. That God will hear our voice. He'll hear our petition. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin based on the bloodshed of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing promise? Preacher, I ain't got no sin. Well, you need to read your Bible. You ain't never going to see no sin in your life if you never read your Bible. God will get up in your grill when you start reading his word. He'll make you think, he'll, he'll, he'll make you realize you need to repent of stuff you never know was wrong. Amen. Because, see, you think it's all about an action, and God's more concerned about your attitude. You're, you're, you're thinking, when you hear that word wicked ways, you're thinking about things you do, and God's thinking about how you think. Jesus. He didn't lower the bar for New Testament Christians over Old Testament saints. He raised the bar. He said, you heard in the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I'm telling you under grace, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already. He said, but you know, under law, you heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But, but I'm here to tell you, under grace, if you hate your brother, or, or, or if you're angry with your brother without a cause, then you're guilty of murder. Some of y'all get mad. Shoo! Because somebody texted you something that you took wrong, you get mad at them. Ain't no cause or no reason. They, they just didn't think through what they were sending before they sent it. Anybody ever done that one? And then people won't talk to you for three months. I'm, hey, I'm serious. If you're angry with your brother without a cause, man, listen... You can't walk around with a chip on your shoulder and expect to be in revival. When there's people that every time you think of them, it's in a negative context, you're not living in revival. The glory's departed. 
It's always killed me that a woman in the Old Testament would name her son Ichabod because it literally means the glory has departed. I believe you could write that on a sign over probably the majority of churches in America today. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to communicate the thought. What I believe is the truth that we're a nation in need of revival. Amen. And revival won't start at Brunswick County Complex. Or, or the White House or the governor's mansion that's not birthed in God's house amidst God's people. Amen. It's got to begin with you and it's got to be begin with me. I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their, heal their land. God says, you got four things to do. If you really want revival, and I'm going to do three things. You humble yourself and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked way. I will hear from heaven, forgive your sin, and heal your land. Anybody happen to know what the number seven represents in the Bible? Completion. Perfection. Complete restoration of relationship with God. And then he ends his statement like this. Now mine eyes will be open. And my ear attend. Solomon to the prayer that is prayed in this place. God's looking and God's listening. I'm looking, Solomon. My eyes will be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in, he didn't say any place. I'm glad, I, I believe I can pray anywhere. I'm praying my truck going down the road. If you ride with me, you'll probably pray double time. <laughs> I, I, I can pray over at Billy's house. I can pray in my house. I can pray in my bedroom. I can pray under the awning in my front yard as I did today. But God didn't say any place. When you're in need of revival, he said, this place, my house. And, and so here's, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to bow your heads with me. If you're not sitting beside somebody, I want you to get up and I want you to go sit beside somebody.
want you to take that person sitting beside of you or on either side of you and, and just take them by the hand. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your head and I want you just to think for a moment. And I'd like for you now to join me in, in asking God, what is it in your life? What is it in my life that would hinder me from experiencing His glory in a more real, vital, and vibrant way? What wickedness do I need to put away? What do I need to turn from in order to turn to Him? Father, we, we acknowledge that try as we may, there are times that we fall short of your glory. God, sometimes unintentionally, we sin against you. And God, we just confess to you this evening that there are even times intentionally we make choices and decisions that aren't your good and perfect plan for our lives. So Lord, we ask you to give us the grace to turn away from anything that's unpleasing to you. We agree with Solomon because we agree with your word. And so we confess to you we are not yet glorified. And as we're sanctified, we have sinned and stand in need of forgiveness. God, we pray as humbly as we know how and yet recognizing that even our own independence screams out pride and arrogance rather than humility. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see those things that we depend on we cling to and hang on to and that we put our trust in rather than trusting you. Lord, we, we are convinced, at least I'm convinced tonight, that I, I can't humble myself without your help. You've told us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so, Father, here we are. 
gathered in your house, acknowledging our need for your help. Lord, do you know the condition of our country better than we do? But you told us to pray. So God, we ask you that you would look on the the fighting, the wars in our streets, the division amongst people and classes and cultures with grace and with mercy. Lord, we believe that you have put us where you've put us to make a difference. So God, we acknowledge our our need and ask you to fill us with your precious Holy Spirit, your presence. We're so thankful that you gave us this building to worship in, but God, you've declared each of us to be your temple, your dwelling place. And so we invite you to fill us just like you filled Solomon's temple. Fill us till we're overflowing. God, we know that according to your word, you have a purpose and a plan for every person gathered under the roof of this building, for those joining, following with us online this evening. We all have purpose. You've created us unto good works. And so, Lord, we certainly come to seek your face this evening. Show us what it is that you would have each of us to do, how to be more engaged in what you're doing on this planet. Father, we pray that you would birth something in our spirits that would not only affect us and our church, but it would infect our community. God, we read where you you took 12 ordinary guys, 120 simple people and you turn the world upside down and so God we believe that you can do the same with us today help us to be the light of Christ Mm -hmm. in our present darkness Mm -hmm. help us to be the salt of the earth that you have created us to be God, we pray for for Pastor Shane as he would come and lead us in these what we call revival meetings. Lord, we know that Shane cannot revive us. We know that he doesn't have the ability to change us. But God, I know and I've seen before how you can take an ordinary man Mm -hmm. 
Fill him with the power of your spirit, the wisdom of your word, to be a catalyst for change. And so, Lord, I pray for Shane that you would protect him and his family. I pray that you would see them safely to our community and to our church. I pray that you would help him to be humble, but also courageous. I pray that you would help him to be bold. I pray that you would give him the very words that you would have me to hear and us to hear. And that they would be in power and demonstration of the Spirit of God working in our midst. Lord, your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And so we just confess to you this evening that we're in agreement. We cannot find one place in Scripture where you inhabit the complaining or the grumbling or the pouting of your people. And so, Lord, we come here tonight to celebrate Christ. We come here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've been reminded just this last couple of days that this life is not all that there is. God, we're so grateful that we believe according to his own testimony that you've taken one of our brothers, Terry Hewlin, home to be with you. And God, we all long for and look for that day. Help us to live for you on this side of eternity. Help us to represent you well in the presence of the people that you have placed around us with the platform that you have given to each of us. Forgive us where we have sinned. Give us the power to live lives that are holy, pleasing, and acceptable to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.